honestly, it is uh, one of my favorite things to do, to be with the church family on Fridays and, and on Sundays. They're some of my favorite days because we get to uh, worship the Lord together. Um, and the time that we have of uh, fellowship over the word and over singing, too, is such a rich blessing, and I'm glad that we're able to do that together. And I'm, uh, you know, for those of you who braved the, uh, the traffic coming into the city and even coming through the Richmond district to get over here, we're so grateful for you uh, to, to, that you decided to uh, make it a priority to come out and worship with us this evening. Well, this evening, we're going to resume thinking about dating. The process of dating itself after we had a brief pause in our series to talk about the importance of purity in our lives and the hope that we have in the gospel when we do fail. We are going to do so, refocus on dating anyway, uh, by trying to see what the Bible has to say about a very common question that people have. How do I know if I'm ready? Right? How do I know if I'm ready? And uh, before we begin to uh, even think about answering that question, let's just commit our time uh, before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for how your word truly is sufficient. For how in your word we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so even though we may not uh, see dating particularly in the scriptures, we are grateful that your word is not silent about how we ought to think about certain aspects of dating. And so we pray that uh, you would be with us this evening, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand uh, what your word has to say to us. And uh, may you be honored and glorified as we begin to think a little more biblically about something that is, well, not biblical. So we pray, Father, that you be glorified this evening. It's in your, uh, it's, uh, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we, uh, as we begin to answer the question, how do I know if I'm ready? Let me begin with just a few acknowledgments. First, as I just mentioned in my prayer, I understand that dating is not in the Bible. Okay, so I understand that dating is not in the Bible. Uh, and some of us would even say that dating is not biblical at all since it's not in the Bible. And I'm fine with that because dating is more of a cultural concept, right, that we have developed more recently in uh, the last, I don't know, 100-something years uh, that helps us get to marriage. And there are a lot of things like that in our world that are not in the Bible. But it's actually perfectly fine for us to take part in it, to be a part of it, to practice within the proper boundaries that Scripture gives us. It's fine for us to do those things within the proper boundaries that Scripture gives us. And dating is one of those things. It's a vehicle that God has given us at this time in our culture to help us pursue what is in the Bible, marriage. So dating, yes, it's not in the Bible, but it's how people get to marriage today. You could try and go for an arranged marriage. I have a friend in seminary who was a missionary in India, and he got an arranged marriage. And so if you wanted that, you could pursue that too. But here in America, we don't really do that. 
it'd be hard for you to find that. Right, so dating is what we have. How do we think about it biblically? Okay, so that's the first acknowledgement that I want to make. The second thing that I, the second acknowledgement that I want to make is that some of the things that I'm going to say tonight are not promises. Okay, they're not promises that you will get married if you fulfill certain requirements. Right, even if you believe at the end of this message that you are ready to pursue marriage, it does not mean that marriage will be right around the corner. Okay, it doesn't mean that it's going to be right around the, around the corner. There are some brothers and sisters who believe that they are ready to pursue marriage. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, God has not allowed for them to get married. And so they find themselves in a position where they desire marriage, but they are entrusting themselves to the Lord while they strive to be faithful to him in their lives. And just they're just waiting. They're waiting for for God to kind of reveal what's next. And there could be some of you who are here this evening who are in that category, whether you're here in person or if you're online or listening to this later. I have no way of knowing to whom all of this will apply, but I just want to make sure that you all understand that the desire for marriage alone does not always mean that God will grant marriage. The desire alone does not always mean that God will grant marriage. And that being said, and that being said, tonight, what we are going to explore are, are three areas of life which may indicate that you are ready to pursue marriage. And notice that key word that I used, right? That you may that may indicate that you are ready to pursue marriage. This is not a promise. This is not a surefire sign that you actually are ready because there are actually a lot of different factors than just these three that I have on, on the screen. Uh, but for our purposes this evening, we're only going to look at three predominant areas which may indicate that you are ready to pursue marriage. Okay? So I'm going to emphasize that really heavily. It may indicate it. Okay? It's not necessarily uh, definitely the fact. All right, so they, and so these three areas that we're going to be looking at are, number one, a desire for marriage, number two, spiritual maturity, and number three, financial readiness, financial readiness, okay? All right, so the first thing that we're going to look at is the desire for marriage. Now, like I said in our introduction, the desire for marriage itself is not an indication that you are ready to pursue marriage, but it is certainly a helpful factor. Turn with me to Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Or if you want to look at the screen, you can look at the screen. Okay, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. We read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So whenever we start talking about marriage, we want to understand God's design for marriage, which means that we always find ourselves back in Genesis at some point. Right, because that's where we see the first marriage. And so what we want to think about is what does God want for his people to do in marriage? Or what is his purpose for marriage? Well, what we're going to see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that those pursuing marriage 
are supposed to, number one, this is the next slide, please. Number one, so three purposes for God's plan of marriage. Number one, we're suppo- supposed to reflect God's image. That's Genesis 1, 26 to 27, right? We just read that. We were created in the image of God, male and female. Uh, we are both reflectors of God's image. Number two, we are to be fruitful and to multiply. We're, and when we, when we are fruitful and when we, when we do multiply, right, this is talking about having kids, we are told that we are supposed to have dominion over the entire earth. We're supposed to subdue the entire earth. We're supposed to fill it, right? It's not just all the humans all on one small little island and the rest of the world gets to roam free, right? We're supposed to fill the entire earth. So we're doing the right thing. By doing that. And number three, we are supposed to mutually help each other. Right, Genesis 2.18 says this, Then God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Right, so as Adam was doing his job, as he was naming all the animals, and he was recognizing that they were male and female of each animal kind, he realized, Oh, wait a second. I am by myself. Right? And for the first time in all of creation, God actually says that something is not good. Right? That man is alone. That man does not have a suitable, suitable helper for him. And so one of, the, one, of the key, one of these key things right, is that we are to mutually help each other. We're to, to help each other in the task that God has given us. So uh, those are the three things. Reflect God's image. Right? We we show other people through our relationships the unity that is uh, in God. We are to be fruitful and multiply, and we're to mutually help each other. Right? That is God's purposes. Those are three of God's purposes for, uh, for marriage. Now, why do we start with this? Right? Why do we start with this? Especially since we're talking about dating. Well, it's because, and you've heard it all before, dating is for the purpose of marriage, right? Yeah, fun. Yeah, I mean, it is fun, but um, right, it's for the purpose of marriage, right? It's not, it's not one of those things where, like, uh, you'll date when you're dead. No, it's you, you date for the purpose of marriage. Now, I'm not saying, okay, I am not saying that you must marry the first person that you date. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you must see yourself marrying the other person during that first date. Okay, if you see them and they're picking their nose, well, maybe that's an indication that you shouldn't. But, you know, it's, it's, you know there's some grace for that. Right? There's some grace for that. But what I'm trying to say anyway is that if you are going to pursue a dating relationship, you have to be in the place where you desire marriage if, if the Lord allows for this relationship to progress, right? So you have to be ready if God allows for it to progress to at least more seriously pursue whether it's going towards marriage. Now, we don't date just for fun or just because we're lonely and have nothing better to do. Right, my old college pastor put it this way. If you want to date just because you're lonely, you can hang out with me. Right? Or you can hang out with me and my wife. Right? But see, if you're just lonely, that's not a reason at all for you to desire dating. 
We don't date for loneliness, but we're trying, what we are trying to do when we are dating is we're trying to build intentional friendships with someone of the opposite sex so that we can see, we can determine whether or not we want to marry them, right? But remember what we said too in that sermon on first dates, right? A first date really is an opportunity for you to get to know a brother or a sister and try and uh, rejoice in what God has done in their lives, you're just trying to get to know them. You're just trying to build healthy relationships with them. And that's what we're trying to do on our first date. And then after that, you can kind of figure out whether this relationship has what it takes to go forward, right? Has what it takes to lead to marriage. Now, how long it takes is subjective. But the key is if you really are ready to pursue marriage when you begin dating, you won't be afraid if it gets serious, you won't be afraid if it gets serious. Okay, well, maybe you can get a little, you know, nervous. Right? But there's, a, there's an aspect of it where you're okay with that. Right? There's an aspect of it where because you know that you are dating for the purpose of marriage anyway, the fact that it's leading there shouldn't freak you out. Right? If you're a dude, you shouldn't be calling up your guy friends and being like, guys, I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, she really thinks I'm serious about marrying her. Right? Or girls, you're not supposed to call up your girlfriends and be like, I don't know what he's doing. What's her, what are his intentions? Why is he talking to me so much? Right? We don't want to have that attitude of suspicion towards one another. If we are ready, right, and if we've gone on that date for that purpose to see whether we, it, it's uh, going to lead to marriage or not, you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be scared. You're just trying to explore it, or you're trying to see where it's going to go. It could continue forward, but it could also not go forward, too. Right? After a few dates, you might be like, eh, I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe not. Right? And that'll be fine. Right? But anyways, the timing of how long it will take is subjective. You know, I knew a guy in seminary who met a girl at lunch on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Um, well, that's given lunch. Right? And he was engaged to her by the end of the week. And that's probably some pretty intense dating. Um, and they were married a few months later. My roommate in seminary met his future... So he started his job at the church in January, like the second week of January. Started dating her in the third week of January. Got engaged to her by the end of February and married her in June. Right? And many people, they take a, a little longer to figure out whether they want to get married than those two couples that I've just mentioned. Right? But what I'm trying to point, get to is that there are a lot of situational circumstances at play. But my overall point is that if your mentality is such that you would like to date because you would like to get married if the Lord allows, then you're in a good place. You're in a good place. The reason why you're dating is good. You have good motives for that. If the prospect of marriage and eventually having kids, because, you know, if you get married and you do what married people do, you're going to have kids, Lord willing. Right? And if that scares you, then maybe, right, maybe you are not ready to pursue marriage just yet. Or maybe you're just not ready at that time. Again, I'm not saying that you have to get married right away when you begin dating someone. Or that if you do get married, that you have to have kids right away. But, and this is key, if it goes in that direction, or you are at least determined 
to submit any hopes and dreams that you had of what your life was going to look like to God's will for your life. And for, of course, your shared life with your spouse. If you find out eventually that uh, you are pregnant and you're like, oh, but I wanted to travel the world first. Well, sorry. That's not what God had for you. But that's not a mistake either. And so this is the, these are the things that you want to take into account when you're thinking about, do I actually want to get married? Do I want to start dating? Am I actually ready for all that will come if the Lord allows for this to progress fast or slow, right? But am I ready for that? Do I want that? Am I willing to accept that as God's gift for me? And these are some things that we've got to think about. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at uh, a few verses here. We're going to do some cherry picking here for time. But uh, if you want to learn more about what God has to say about uh, marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, I do encourage you to read it on your own. But let's take a look at verse 2. And then after verse 2, we're going to look at verses 8 to 9. Okay, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 7 says this, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Obviously, that means, you know, they're together, not that each person has, their, has a different spouse than the one that's, than that's already given, okay? Verse 8 to 9 says this, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain, to, to, uh, sorry, it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, there are certain people whom God has given a very strong desire for marriage. And for those people, it is appropriate for them to pursue marriage because their desire may grow into a sinful ruling desire that leads them to immorality. Now, please, don't hear me or the Apostle Paul say that the reason why you ought to get married is so that you can simply no longer be tempted to commit sexual sin. Okay, that is not the reason why you should get married. Right? That's not the primary reason why you should desire marriage. That would actually be the opposite of both spouses seeking to help and serve one another. Because instead, what would they be doing? Trying to serve self. And so that is not what Paul is saying. That is not what I'm saying. But more importantly, that's not what Paul is saying. Right? Paul is instead highlighting the fact that marriage is God's grace gift. It is a grace gift to singles who have a desire for marriage. And to reject that gift, if one has those strong desires, opens the door for temptation to grow into a ruling desire that may lead some people to pursue a life of immorality, of self-gratification. If you just don't want to be lonely or left behind while your friends date and perhaps even get married, then you need to check your motivations. You need to check your motivations. Is your desire 
for a relationship because the culture tells you that you need to be in a relationship and that if you're not in a relationship, you will not be fulfilled. Do you desire a relationship because you want to be seen as desirable by a person you desire? What are your motivations? If your motive in desiring a relationship is primarily due to you being satisfied and you being fulfilled by the relationship, then maybe you're not as ready to pursue marriage as you think you are. But if you desire a relationship because you believe that it is God's provision for you, then you are, or, and you are ready and willing to learn to die to self so that you can learn to please or serve your spouse. And you want to grow in Christ-likeness with your spouse. And you want to serve God and the church better together with your spouse. Then you very well may be ready to genuinely pursue marriage in a way that is not self-focused, but that is others-focused. So that's a key indicator. There's a key indicator that could tell you whether you are ready to get married or not. It's not everything, but it can help. Right? It can uh, clarify some things. Now, naturally, that leads us to the second area of life, which may indicate that you are ready to pursue marriage, which is the area of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. And there's honestly a lot for me to say here, but I didn't put everything down that I wanted to put down because otherwise you would be here forever, and I don't think you would love me for that. Well, anyways, in the coming weeks, Pastor Ray is actually going to help us uh, look into what a godly man ought to look like and what a godly woman ought to look like. He's going to get deep into the details. We're not going to do that today because I don't want to steal his thunder. Right? But what we are trying to do tonight is we're trying to recognize that both men and women should have some spiritual maturity as they are considering pursuing marriage. Now, I hesitate to tell you the specifics in what that, sp that spiritual maturity ought to look like or how much you ought to have, because I don't want to make it seem as if only spiritually mature people get to get married. I've seen too many people who are at different places spiritually get married to draw a hard line here and say, once you pass this certain threshold, then you can get married. And I've seen too many people who are either you know, not really spiritual at all, or maybe really infant in their faith, and they get, and they get married, and that's okay. Right? It's okay. Because eventually, God will work in that marriage. Right? But more on that later. What I want to say to you, though, is that if you want to marry wisely, if you want to marry well, and that should be our key, right? To marry wisely, to marry well. And you can't, you cannot afford to pursue marriage on the basis of attraction, common interests, and personality alone. Okay? If you want to marry wisely, if you want to marry well, you cannot afford to pursue marriage for the sake of, or on the basis of attraction, 
common interests and personality alone. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to kind of camp out here and just pull out what we can. We're not going to go through every detail, but we're going to pull out what we can. Okay, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. We're going to read the whole things together. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There's a lot there. We're only going to pull out some little details. Okay, but notice how the relationship between the husband and wife, it's supposed to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. And when you see in verse 22 that um, command, or it's not really a command, but uh, well, yeah, it is a command. Wives are to be subject or submissive to their husbands as to the Lord. It's, well, okay, it's not really a command. But to put it in a different way, right? As wives are told, and this is kind of, um, it's like, it's an expectation that they would do it, but they might not, right? But wives are told to be subject or to be submissive to, to their husbands, right? If you want to put it in other words, basically what we're trying to say is, as we all, as the church, are to be subject or submissive to Christ by choosing to live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us, so are ladies to voluntarily submit themselves to their husband's leadership. Right? We voluntarily submit ourselves to Christ right? because we love him. Because we trust him. Because we know that he has our best interests in mind. In a similar way, right, when ladies are looking to their husbands, right, they're supposed to look at their husbands, and when their husbands are doing what is right, when their husbands are following after God and leading them towards God, then they are to, in a very similar way, be subject to their husbands, to voluntarily submit to their husband's leadership. But notice this, though. The wife is not in any way inferior to her husband, nor is she a servant who is commanded to obey. She's being asked to be subject, asked to, uh, to submit, but she is not commanded to obey. Right? She isn't equal with her husband before God. Right? They're equal before God, 
as people. But, they, but husbands and wives have distinct roles. Okay, husbands and wives have distinct roles. And her particular role is to reflect what the church's role is to Christ. Right? Just as the church willingly and lovingly wants to submit itself to Christ, so should the wife want to do that to a godly husband. Now, the husbands, of course, are not given free reign to do whatever they want. Okay, husbands and you know, future husbands, you are not allowed to go purchase a lazy boy, sit back and demand, where are my slippers and my Doritos and my Pepsi? Okay, you're not allowed to demand those things. She is not your servant. She is not your slave. She's your wife. You are called husbands or future husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Is that an example of totalitarian rule? Yes or no? No, it is not. And his example of love is not selfish at all. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we who believe in him might receive the righteousness of God in him. He became sin for us so that he could save us, right? This is sacrificial language that we're talking about here. The husbands are supposed to lead their wives, and they are supposed to lead their families, but they are to do so in the fear of the Lord. They are supposed to do so as a servant, sacrificially loving their families, striving to lead their families into greater Christ-likeness. That is the role of a man who truly loves God and loves his family. Right? That's what he ought to look like. And like I said, right, if husbands fulfill their God-given roles to love their wives and to take the lead and to help everyone in the family grow in Christ-likeness, that they're willing to sacrifice, right? wouldn't that make the role of the wife to submit to him easy? It would. If, you, if, if the ladies know that their husbands love them and that their husbands want Christ-likeness for them and that every decision that they're going to make is leading them in that trajectory, wouldn't it be easy for a wife to say, yes, I support you in whatever decision that you're going to make? I have my input, but I will support you no matter what because you have my trust. It would make it so, so much easier. Now, men who desire to be in a relationship, consider these questions. How is your walk with Jesus? How is your walk with Jesus? What does your relationship with him look like? And even if you are relatively younger in the faith compared to some other people who've grown up in the church, do you know how to feed yourself spiritually? Are you able to have spiritual conversations with fellow believers? Are you capable of trying to, or are you capable of applying the scriptures to your own life and capable of helping other people think about the scriptures and apply it to their life too? If you desire marriage, 
this is what you've got to think about. Do you reflect these aspects of maturity? Are they evident in your life? They don't have to be perfect, but are they evident? And that's what you've got to think about, young. Know, that's what you've got to think about, young men. Now hear me on this. Okay? I am not, I am not saying that the only way that you can possibly get into a relationship is if you are elder qualified. Okay, because there are elder qualified men out there who are not husbands. There are single pastors out there who faithfully love the flock that's been given to them and they desire marriage, but they've not been allowed to get married for whatever reason. And there are other people who are maybe not pastors, but they are certainly elder qualified and that is true for them as well. So I'm not saying that that's what you must be. Right? Or, or who you must be. I'm not saying that your righteousness needs to surpass the Pharisees and the scribes in order for you to get married. But what I am saying to you is that if you want to get married, that you need to be in the process of becoming more like Jesus every day. You need to be in the process of becoming more like Christ every day so that you can eventually bring your future wife and your future family alongside you as you strive to become like Christ every day. Okay? The, the desire to become more like Christ does not stop when you say, I do. It's every day till you die. You desire to become more like Christ. Every day till you die, you desire to help your family do that too. Now, I will concede that there are plenty of married men in churches who do not meet this particular qualification. Maybe they married out of desperation. Maybe they married out of lustful passion. Maybe they don't even know what God calls them to be or who God calls them to be. The exact reasons are not important. These men who do not desire to grow should not be your role models, men. Okay, they should not be your role models. Don't use them as examples and say, well, you know what? So-and-so isn't spiritually mature, and he got married. Why can't I? Okay, that's really bad. <laughs> that's really bad reasoning. Okay, you don't want to have that line of reasoning. Since you know and you all have no outs because I literally just told you. Since you know who God calls you to be and that you need to be growing in Christ-likeness, you listen to me now. Don't you dare, don't you dare pursue marriage, whether it be through dating, courtship, or whatever method you choose, if you, are, if you know that you're not going to care for yourself spiritually and your wife and your future family spiritually. Uh, yeah, you're not going to care for their spiritual growth either. Right? Don't you dare pursue a relationship if you know that you're not going to take care of yourself and you know you're not going to take care of them. Okay, don't you dare do that. I don't care how lonely you feel. I don't care how much she likes you. If you don't love her enough to love Jesus and to bring her close to Jesus... You have no business being in a relationship. Okay? If you don't love her enough to love Jesus and to bring her closer to Jesus, you have no business whatsoever to be in a relationship. 
participate. Yes, they are responsible for their own walks, but you bear a responsibility too. Or you will bear a responsibility too. And so if you're not growing in Christ-likeness, if you don't know how to lead yourself to become more like our Lord, you won't be able to do that for anybody else. Sisters, if you notice that this is what the guy looks like as they're trying to pursue you, stay far away. Stay far away. Be wary of the man who does not demonstrate that he wants to and can grow in, the, in his own faith. If he can't do that, he's not going to do that for you. Now, that being said, I know I said some strong things there very strongly. That being said, there is grace. Okay? There is grace. There is grace for those men who get married, but they're not who they should have been when they decided to get married. There is always hope. There is always grace because of the gospel. Even if you start wrong, there's always a way out. I mean, sorry, not a way out. There's always a way for correction. There's always a place for course correction. These men who do start off wrong, right? They can eventually learn how to become godly husbands, but they must commit themselves to learn, or they must be disciplined, not just to go to church and not just to listen to sermons, but to also put those truths that they are hearing into practice. They must learn how to live not just for themselves, but for the sake of him who saved them. And not only for him, but also for the sake of their families as well. And in a sense, right, in a sense, we should all be learning how to do this before marriage. We should all be learning how to do this before marriage. But for those who start with their marriages already behind in their walk with God, it doesn't mean that they're doomed to fail. It doesn't mean that they're doomed to fail. But for these husbands who start behind, They must commit themselves to growing in their love for Christ. To to growing in the love, a true love for their future, for their spouses and for their families. So men, knowing who God calls you to be, don't rush. Don't take shortcuts. Take the time to learn to grow in godliness and be godly men. Don't pretend to be godly men. Be godly men. And if you haven't been, there's time. There's time. There's a place for that. Don't be lazy, okay, guys? Don't be lazy. But strive to honor God now in the small things so that you can progress to the bigger things so that you will eventually be able to lead your future wife and to lead your future families well. And if our relationships with the spouse that God gives us is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between God and his people, then we ought to want for these relationships to be steeped in a love for God so that people have a good idea of who God is, right? If we want people to see the amazing love that God has for us, 
one of the best ways that the church can do that is to have good marriages. Because when you have good marriages, when you have two sinners brought together who love each other, who are willing to sacrifice for one another for the sake of the gospel, that provides a clear picture of what God does for his church, of what Christ has done for this church. Now, ladies, I'm not going to be as hard on you. You have a similar question, though, that you must ask when you think about whether you are ready to pursue marriage. Except for, really, it just focuses down, it focuses on, are you willing to love God, and are you willing to die to self? Are you willing to love God, and are you willing to die to self? There are honestly a lot of different passages that I could go to here. 1 Peter 3 comes to mind. Proverbs 31 comes to mind. But we're going to stay in Ephesians 5. Ladies, if your relationship with your husband is supposed to mirror that of Christ's relationship to the church, or I'm sorry, the church's relationship to Christ, that naturally means that you should be in the process of becoming godly too, right? Don't have to be perfect, but you should be in the process of becoming more godly. Right? Christ is in the process of sanctifying his church. Why? So that he can present to himself the church as holy and blameless. Your fathers, or if your fathers aren't Christians, your spiritual fathers are supposed to shepherd you and teach you, but you have the responsibility to apply those truths to your own life. And, you know, that gift of submission that you have, right, that, that future submission uh, that, that you hold on, or that, that submission that you hold on to, when you want to give it to your spouse, if the Lord allows you to get married, that's not something that you're just going to learn, that you're just going to know how to do out of the blue. You start first with God. You start first with God. It's something that you practice daily as you walk with your Lord and as you submit to his will, as you submit to his word and what he calls you to do and who he calls you to be as his daughters. Again, this is not a promise that if you grow in godliness that God will provide a spouse for you, but it is a reminder that our goal in life first and foremost is not to date just so that we can get married or uh, whatnot, but as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, our goal is to make it our ambition, and this is for both of us, both ladies and men, our goal is to make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, right? That whether we're here in our bodies or whether we're up in, the, up in heaven with the Lord, that our goal is to please God. It is our ambition to please God in everything. If you want a marriage where you and your spouse can grow in godliness together and serve God together, then the process starts before you even begin to think about exploring marriage as you are putting yourself in the way of godliness and by the way, this is the reason why it is so important for us to pursue discipleship and to have good biblical friendships. The preaching is the primary means by which God grows his church. Right? So that's why we emphasize preaching so much. But God also grows his church through the ministry of the word that we do with one another in private. 
right? Whether that's a one-on-one discipleship relationship or whether that's within a small group discipleship uh, context. And it doesn't need to be super formal. Right? It doesn't have to be meeting at a coffee shop every week while we go over respectable sins or desiring God or don't waste your life, God is the gospel, or whatever it is. Right? It doesn't need to be those things. But there does need to be a time where you have someone periodically pouring the truth into your life. And yes, at times, revealing blind spots of sin in your life as well. And then you must go and do likewise. Right? There's a chain of discipleship that needs to happen. And I can tell you as a pastor of this church that often, one of of our greatest weaknesses is often we have discipleship. There is someone pouring into someone or some, some people, but then the discipleship doesn't pour out. It doesn't keep going. It gets log jammed. Sometimes it never continues on. Discipleship is really, really important. It needs to continue to go. Right, we are to make disciples of all nations, right? right? As we are going, discipling is one of the main things that we do as a church. And so value discipleship. Right? Value discipleship. And it doesn't need to be complicated either. We have formal ministries like Forge and T2, which can help men and women find disciples if they are having issues finding disciples in the church. But discipleship can be as simple as just asking someone that you respect to teach you what God has been teaching them. For example, if you admire someone for their ability to study the Bible well, then you can ask them hey, can you teach me how to study the Bible? If you see someone who routinely works with difficult people and they are level-headed, super gracious, super understanding, and you know that that wouldn't be you, that you would be prone to anger and prone to impatience and whatnot, you can ask them, hey, can you teach me what God has taught you so that I can grow to imitate Christ in this area of gentleness and patience that you have in my own life. And as you get discipled, pick up on what your discipler is teaching you and how they're teaching you and try and make that your own as you go and disciple other people. And that's really as complicated as it needs to be. It's not very complicated at all. Sometimes discipleship can be, hey, I need to go to Target. Would you come with me to Target? And as you are going to Target in the car, you're asking them about their life. You're asking them about what God has been teaching them. And as you're doing that, you're trying to just, yeah, show them what what you've learned as you've gone through similar circumstances or discuss those things, sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. That's really as simple as it could be too. And I've done that with some of you. I need to go to Costco. Let's go. That's as simple as it needs to be. Brothers and sisters, we ought to have a passion for discipleship. And that'll, that'll help us so much when it comes to finding in our own weaknesses when it comes to spiritual maturity. Right? And, and people who are in our lives, they can actually help us and, and help us see whether any change needs to happen. 
And they can tell you, hey, you know what? I think you ought to hold off. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't pursue dating just yet because I've noticed that there is this one particular red flag that I've seen in your life. Now, granted, that's all subjective, right? It could be true. It could be true. But there could also be times where people say, you know what? I think I see sin in your life. And you examine yourself and you're like, you know what? I don't agree. I appreciate your love and your concern and care for me. But when I look at my own heart, when I look at my own motives, I understand what your concern is, but I don't fully agree. And that's okay, too. And that's okay, too. We are not each other's judge. We are not each other's Holy Spirit. So in discipleship, there needs to be some graciousness that we extend to one another. We are trying to push each other towards Christ, but we don't do so with knives out. We don't do so with knives out. Don't take every opportunity you have to stab someone in the face or in the back. That's worse. Actually, I don't know. Is it worse? Eh, whatever. Remember, everything is said in love. And, and, and the graciousness that you can have can be as simple as this. Hey, you know, I've, I've, as I've observed your life, I've noticed these particular things. Said, what do you have to say about that? That's as simple as it needs to be. That's as hard as it needs to be, too. Unless it's clear rebellion. Right? But if you just notice something and maybe they, it's a one-off thing or, or whatever, show some grace. And ask them, like, hey, what do you think? This is what I've been seeing. Am I right in my assessment on this? Am I not? Can you explain to me, like, what's going on in your heart right now? And maybe in the way that you pursue your brother or sister and because you have a relationship of respect right you can win them over right make them aware of their sin and win them over back to the lord that would be far better than to just outright accuse someone of sin and that's one of the things that i have to learn too and that i'm continuing to learn to continue to ask questions, not assume. Always ask, always, always, always asking clarifying questions. Always assuming that I'm not right. Okay. And if that's what I need to do, that's what you guys need to be doing too. Never assume that you're right. Never assume that your understanding of the situation is better than the other person. Always, always, always ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Okay. So, that's under the realm of discipleship. But anyways, spiritual maturity, right? So far, we have seen how a, how a desire to pursue marriage and the presence of spiritual maturity may be indicators that you are ready to pursue marriage. Maybe. Okay, maybe. Now, the last area of life that we're going to look at uh, that may indicate that you're ready to pursue marriage will be financial readiness, okay? Financial readiness. Now, I know some of you are probably wondering, where does social maturity and personal conduct come in? Well, okay, if the other person is spiritually mature, hopefully those character concerns are dealt with, okay? Hopefully those character concerns are dealt with. Um, but... You know, when it comes to social maturity, 
personal conduct, emotional intelligence, that's the new buzzword, right? Um, when it comes to those things, I, I mean, there's not a lot within the scriptures that talk about that, so I don't want to talk about that, really. But not only that, but again, I've seen so many people where I'm just like, you got married? I'm like, <laughs> okay. Right? And it's just, you know, there's just so many times where I've seen people, I'm just like, I can't believe she is so gracious to put up with you, or vice versa. Right? And so when it comes to, like, social maturity, conduct, even hygiene, areas of hygiene, right? it's just like, you know what, personal preferences are personal preferences. I'm not going to get into that. Right? But what we're talking about is something that the Bible does talk about, which is some aspect of financial responsibility. Okay, some aspect of financial responsibility. We do see in the scriptures that men are, the prime, are primarily responsible for taking care of their families financially. But we also see that women can contribute to their family's financial well-being also. But for the moment, we're just going to focus on the men since God gave them that leadership role. He gave it to them in creation. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy we will go to 1 Thessalonians. No, 2 Thessalonians. But 1 Timothy first. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because of the leadership role that God has given men, if we, if we fail to provide for our own households through work. We fail in the very basic thing that God call, uh, the, uh, the very basic thing that God calls us to, to do in leading and providing. Right? Even before sin entered into the world, God gave Adam a job. Men, you should have a job. Okay? You should have a job. You are called to work, and you are to work hard for the glory of God. Will your work frustrate you? Yes, it will. Will it make you tired? Yes, it will. Will it make you want to quit? Yes, it can. Why? Because of the fall. Right? Because of the fall. You can look at it in Genesis 3. Right? Because Adam sinned, it is by the sweat of his brow that the ground will produce any produce for him. Right? <clears throat> That is the effect of the fall. When we die and we go to heaven or when Christ comes back, whichever comes first, we still are going to have work to do. We're still going to work. Right? So work in itself is not bad. Okay? Work in itself is not bad. We're to strive, men, in our work, whatever it is, to try and glorify God. Okay? Glorify God in your work, in your attitude even if you think that the task you're being asked to do is beneath you. I cannot tell you how many times when I was clearing out boxes in Costco, I encountered someone's nasty sample garbage, right? whether it's in my hand or in my face because it fell out of the box onto my face. I cannot tell you how many times I've had to do that. I cannot tell you how many disgusting things I've had to clean up. Right? And all the while, the pride inside me was saying, I am above this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. I've got a bachelor's degree. But let me tell you, every time that pride came up in my heart, I was reminded of the fact that, you know what? I have no right to be this prideful. 
I have absolutely no right to be this prideful because God calls me to glorify him in everything that I do, right? In every task, in every thought. So, brothers, will your job frustrate you? Will it make you hate it? Will you despise it? Maybe. Maybe. But what does God call you to do? And you know the answer. He calls you to glorify him in everything. And that is our aim, right? To please him in everything. To work hard for him. Not for man, right? But for him. That's what we're supposed to do. Right? Even in Paul's day, unbelievers understood that they had an obligation to work, to care for their families by working. And if we Christians fail to understand that, then we do deny the faith. Right? Because what are the greatest commandments? You love God and you love people. If you don't provide for your family, not only are you not loving God by loving your family right, and having a good attitude in working, right, but you're failing to love people too. And these are the most important people to you. So you're worse than an unbeliever if you do that. You know, later, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, verse 3, 7, 7 to 11, he says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. See, Paul, he is encouraging the Thessalonians to follow his example, to work hard. And even though he had a right to make a living from preaching the gospel, he worked day and night so that the church could see that every single person is called to work. If we just sit around and expect for other people to take care of us while we fool around and entertain ourselves to death or get in other people's business, then we are not doing what God has ordained to do. We're not doing what God has ordained for us to do. God has called us to work. He has called us to take care of ourselves and to take care of our families. And if you fail to do that, if you think that the government owes you a handout and that you should be getting money from the government, you shouldn't have to work. And the government should take care of you. You were wrong. This is not a political thing, okay? This is not a political thing. This is a biblical thing. If you do not work, you shall not eat. Because God calls you to work. Who is supposed to lead your family? Who is supposed to take care of your family? Not the government. It's you. All right? It's not Uncle Sam's responsibility. He's not even real. He's a comic book character. Propaganda figure. You men, are called to work and care for your families. So don't be undisciplined. Don't be a busybody. 
And if that is you, if that does describe you, these are not my words. These are not my words. These are God's words through the Apostle Paul. We must be willing to work to earn our living so that we can provide for our families. Now, of course, there are legitimate exceptions. Okay, there are legitimate exceptions. Some people cannot work for one reason or another. That's okay. That's fine. In that case, that is what the government's for, right? But those circumstances in which someone can do absolutely nothing to take care of themselves, it's very, very rare. It's very, very rare. And where they can't help themselves, right, that's where the church family comes in. That's where uh, family, biological family, they're supposed to come in and help, right? But that's the exception to the rule, not, not the rule itself. Most of us are capable of working in some form. Right? We're capable of working in some form. Therefore, we should be working. Now, work shouldn't be your life. It shouldn't be your identity. But you should be committed to working for the glory of God. Now, does the man need to be the primary breadwinner in the family? No. Not necessarily. Sometimes, some of the sisters are really, really skilled in what they do. And because of that skill, they get paid. And that's fine. And that's fine. That's totally fine. And that's something that each individual couple will have to work out for themselves. But just because the lady makes more than the man doesn't mean that the man is failing in his ability to lead his family. It doesn't mean that. But the man does need to be responsible. The man does need to be responsible when he is managing some of those household things, like the finances. If if all all that uh, the man is doing is lying around the house all day, perusing YouTube, social media, stocking, and whatnot, uh, then he's doing nothing. He's not contributing at all to the needs of his family. For single men, you have to prepare yourself. To have a God-honoring work ethic now. Right? Not later, but now. Right? If you're in college, right, then your job is to be a student. A God-honoring student. That you do your work on time. Right? That you are faithful in going to class. Even if there is no cap on how many absences you have. You pay for those classes. Don't throw it away. Think about how many units, or how much you pay per unit. That's how much money you're throwing out the window when you don't show up to class. Have a God-honoring work ethic now. And if you can work while you're in school, great. And then for for the rest of you guys, this class is not, you know, school is not what you're doing. Have a God-honoring work ethic in your work strive to have a godly attitude when you encounter frustrations. Strive to be thankful that you have a job or to be thankful for the different ways that God takes care of you. And also strive to begin saving up money now just because you got nothing to do with it or just because you don't have to pay rent for some of you. It doesn't mean that you should spend your money however you want. Prepare for those future expenses that you might need. A car, perhaps. Right? Um, 
I didn't know if God was going to allow me to get married, but I was saving up money so that when the time came, if the time came, that I could buy an engagement ring. And then hopefully, well, and and also, right, not just the engagement ring, but also that I had enough money to be able to pay for parts of the wedding too. And you don't need to have all that money stacked up and ready to pay right now, but you need to be working toward it, okay? You need to be working toward it. You can't have no money is what I'm saying, okay? You can't have no money. You've got to be working. You've got to be a faithful steward of the time energy and skills that God has given you. Don't be a sluggard like, uh, that, like the one that's described in Proverbs 26, 13 to 15, right? The one who does not go out of the house because he's like, I don't want to go outside. If I go outside, I'm going to get killed because there's a lion outside. Little uh, newsflash. Even in ancient Israel, there weren't lions just walking around in the city. Okay? Now, okay, if you're in San Bruno, maybe there's a lion walking around on the sidewalk. But, all right, the, the fear, the irrational fear that there might be a lion outside, right, that's just crazy. Right, that's just an excuse. Right? And you also don't want to be like this person who's just lying on his bed. Right? This is a really humorous image, right? tossing and turning like a door on its hinges. And that's all you're doing in your sleep. And it's hilarious. It's sad, though, but it's hilarious. Um, right? And also, like, don't be so lazy where you put your hand into the chip bowl, you know, I'm too tired to put the food in my mouth. Right? It doesn't even have to be a chip bowl. It could be whatever, right? But just don't be lazy. Right? We must work. One of the most helpful things that I was told by someone here at church is don't be too proud to flip burgers. Don't be too proud to flip burgers. He, he, this person said that to me right when I was about to graduate. And basically the thing that, I graduate college, and, and the, what, what he wanted me to understand is that I need to be working. That I need to be working, and even if I am looking for another job, that I still need to be working to earn some money while I'm waiting for that job that I want. That I'm not given the excuse of just you know sitting around doing nothing while I'm looking for the job that I want. Or, if you want to think about it this way, until you get a job. Your full-time job is to get a job, okay? So I understand that I am broadly talking about this, and it can be a lot more complicated than what, I'm talking, than what I'm presenting, but the general principle here is that we have to learn to work, and we have to want to work. Now, additionally, it would be good for you to learn how to understand finances, or right? you have to learn how to budget. Uh, and if you know how to budget well, you can learn to my- manage your finances so that you can even live in a place like San Francisco. You don't all have to move out elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, learning how to budget, though, is really important. Sometimes your budget does tell you, I can't live in San Francisco, and you have to be okay with that. Right? But, and if you need help with this, right, no one's ever taught you to, how to budget, you can find some brothers who can help you with that. Um, I had to learn it after I got married, right? but it was still really helpful. Anyways, don't be, don't be proud. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Right? But be humble. Be teachable. Learn and act now. That'd be really helpful. Sisters, like I said earlier, while it is the primary task for the man to provide for the family, it doesn't mean that it's wrong for you to work either. Proverbs 31, Titus 2, both mention how women are to be workers. Uh, and they, uh, uh, Proverbs, uh, Titus 2 says workers at home. 
um, Proverbs 31, the, the uh, Proverbs 31 woman sells, uh, sells things in the marketplace to provide for her household. Um, so, you know, the biblical, the, the biblical passages do, do say it's fine for you to, to work and to contribute to your household. Uh, it would be definitely beneficial um, while you are waiting, while you are entrusting yourself to the Lord to work and to save up for things like retirement. That's a good thing. It's a wise thing to do. Guys, you should save up for retirement too. And while the Lord allows though, right, work hard for his glory. While the Lord allows, you ought to be working hard for his glory. Now, financial readiness in general is somewhat subjective. Right? I'm not going to say, I, I won't say that people thinking about dating must have a certain dollar amount saved uh, before they can even think about pursuing marriage. However, you must, you must, have a plan to be responsible for whatever it is that you need to pay for, right? If you have debt, you need to pay, for, pay that off, right? And, and uh, you, you have to also figure out how you pay down your debt, but also take care of your family. And you don't need to figure out every single detail, every little detail, but you want to have a general plan. You want to have wisely counted the cost so that you can glorify God in all of your decisions. Um, now, I know that this is a little against what most of us have been, been taught because you know, culturally, we live here on the West Coast, so we're te- we tend to be more career-driven. But, you know, if you, are, if, if you are committed to having a plan financially, are you willing to work? That could mean that you could get married whenever you want. You don't have to wait till you're 20-something to get married. You'd be a sophomore in college, and you could get married. I've had friends who've done that. As long as you have a wise plan for how you will take care of school and finances, you can get married at any time. And I know that's kind of a, it's a, it's a large bombshell to drop right at the end of the sermon. But the point is this, right? Not that you should get married as a sophomore, but that honestly, when it comes to readiness, it's subjective. It depends on the maturity of the people and how much they're willing to work. And you know, this idea that you have to have all your ducks lined up in a row before you can even think about pursuing marriage, that's a Western idea. That's not a biblical idea. Remember, Mary and Joseph, they were teenagers. And Joseph learned a trade. And he was taking care of that trade as he was trying to take care of Mary. And I'm not, again, I'm not advocating that you get married in your, early te- in your teens or, or your early 20s, but what I'm saying is this. Don't think that you're not ready just because of your age. Don't think you're not ready just because you pull out your wallet and you're like, well, there's only a 20 in here. Okay. Do something about it. Do something about it. If the Lord allows for you to meet someone and you think that you might be or that you would like to explore marriage with that person and you've already had a plan to take care of yourself financially, What's more important, having the wedding of your dreams or getting married to the person that God has grace given to you, grace gifted to you? If you can have both, great. But if you don't have much, you have to struggle through those first months or first years of marriage, that's part of the fun too. That's part of the fun too, to grow together as you're trusting in God to provide for you. 
You have to remember that the highlight of your life is not your eventual wedding day, if that is what the Lord allows. Right? The highlight of your life is not, should not be your wedding day, if that's what God allows. Right? The highlight of your life should be the journey that God takes you and your spouse on as you together grow more in love for Christ and each other. So this evening, we looked at three areas of life which may indicate that you are ready to pursue marriage. Obviously, you must first have a desire for marriage. If you just want companionship or you just want to experience the feeling of loving someone and being loved, that isn't the point of dating. God gave us this method for our time now. He gave us dating for now so that we can figure out who we might want to marry for his glory, not for our own pleasure. Secondly, we saw that there must be spiritual maturity in both people. Right? There has to be a spiritual trajectory towards Christ's likeness. You don't have to be perfect, but you should be moving towards Christ's likeness. Third, there should be some aspect of financial readiness, financial responsibility. Life ain't free. Right? And so because life ain't free, God calls us to work. So a part of the way that we demonstrate our understanding of God's calling for us is by working. Now, as I've said, Throughout this entire message, the presence of these three areas in our lives does not guarantee that you're going to get married. However, if these three things are present in your life, it can help you have a clearer picture as to whether you are ready to pursue marriage or not. So for some of you, there might be a lot more work that needs to be done for you to get closer to Jesus and for you to be a better steward of what God has given you. So... Commit yourself to doing that. And for the rest of you, excel still more. If you already have a good relationship with the Lord, if you're already trying to be a good steward of what you got, it's not the end, right? Excel still more. Look for opportunities to serve and look for opportunities to grow, making the most of the time while we wait upon God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, this evening, for how you have shown us in your word just these different aspects of life that are important for us to consider when we think about whether we should, uh, whether we are ready to pursue marriage or not. We pray that uh, you would help us, Lord, to uh, be humble and consider what your word has to say uh, and, and, and apply it where it is necessary. We're grateful, Lord, for grace. We're grateful, Lord, for your love, and we pray that those would be the things that motivate us to live lives that please you in all respects. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Okay. So, sorry, I went a little long there. But with discussion questions, we have three this time. Okay. So the first discussion question, why is it easy for some people to think that they are ready to date slash pursue marriage when in fact they are not ready to date or, or be married? So why do we have an inflated view of ourselves sometimes? Right? Why is it easy for us to have an inflated view of ourselves sometimes when it comes to our readiness to date? Um, number two, give some examples of people whom you can trust to give you an honest evaluation of where you're at spiritually. Oh, sorry, that's not a question. That's a statement. Anyways, um, <laughs> uh, eh. you know what I mean, right? So think about it. You don't have to give their names, right? But, but think about who are, who are some of those people, right? What are the, maybe you, you can identify their relationship to you, 
right? But think about some of those people right, who can give you that honest evaluation. Third question. Okay, this is actually a question this time, not a statement. What are some practical ways that Christians can strive to take better care of the money that God gives them to use? Right, so God has given us all some modicum of money. Right, so how can we be good stewards of it? How can we care for it well so that we can uh, begin to plan for our future, whether that future includes a future family or whether it's just you know, us taking care of ourselves and our aging parents. Either way, it's important. Right? So just think about some practical ways that you can take care of those things.